0: Hi, I'm Juliet, the rabbi here in New York City. And I want to be known as the rabbi who keeps things real. That's where I live. I live in New York City where people are real. People are authentic. And I'm so happy to be here with you this week. And you've probably seen lots of rabbis doing weddings and bar mitzvahs, b'nai mitzvahs, funerals, even brises maybe even baby namings, but at the heart of it all is Torah. And what I want to bring to you is a challenge of Torah, talking about the real struggles in Torah. This week, I'll be talking about Old Man Rabbi. That's the name of it, Old Man Rabbi in Chayi Sara. I'm about to be ordained as a rabbi in January. It's very exciting, so follow me. All right, so here we go for today's show. I'm gonna start by saying, you know you've made it on social media when people start insulting you. It's a sad fact. Recently, I started making YouTube videos. My, my uh, channel is at Juliet the Rabbi. And as a backdrop for the videos, I sit in front of a large painting on the wall of my office. And I guess you could say it's, an, it's a family heirloom. heirloom. The painting is called The Rabbi, and the artist is Ben Zion. He's a famous Jewish painter. It depicts an old man with a long white beard. He's sitting barefoot on the floor with a talis, a prayer shawl, draped over his head and shoulders as he gazes down at a Torah scroll he's holding in his gigantic male hands. He's got these gigantic male hands and feet. I used to see him hanging... In my aunt and uncle's house growing up and as a child of communists I had absolutely no context for this old man so I had no idea what it was about and I never asked it never occurred to me to ask and nobody ever explained the painting I had never been in a synagogue before last week my viewership for my Spanish YouTube videos exploded and I got really excited. I started getting a lot of subscribers. I mean, I got like, I think 380 viewers, which was amazing after just like 20 to 40, you know? And I even got some beautiful comments, but one comment was typical of the license people take on social media to express any insulting stupid thought that comes into their minds. Sorry for saying stupid, but it's true. They're just, it's just dumb. And this comment was, the painting behind you is really ugly and you should sell it at its liquidation price. And it came with a thumbs up emoji. I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean by this? Are you, you don't like the painting, but you like what I said? Well, what is the message here? Very confusing. So I just had to laugh. It was so ridiculous. And I was telling some friends, a group of women, I got together to form a, a group of Jewish clergy comprised solely of women. Maybe you've heard me talk about this before. This was my capstone project for my rabbinic studies. And the idea came as a counterpoint to the overwhelming representation of male clergy in the world. And I had personally experienced this dominance and the competition among women that, that arises from it, especially in the tiny Jewish world, and even more so in the tinier Jewish renewal world. I mean, it's really tiny, if you think about the number of Jews in the world in comparison to other other groups, other religions. So my group is an effort to support and empower each other as women clergy, while offering something really unique to the world. Yesterday, during our weekly meeting, I told a group about what had happened with the YouTube comment, and one of the women said very strongly, You're going to have to change your backdrop, Juliet. That painting doesn't represent who you are as a rabbi. It's a leftover image from the past that we're trying to change. And I thought, well, that's true. And then others agreed. And I listened. My heart was just sinking further and further down, down. And then somebody else said, or maybe you could... you could put a band across it like you're banning this antiquate antiquated image and people talked about how hard it is being a woman in a in a as you know in a world of male clergy and being an older woman all of these things and how much we have to fight all the time for 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 respect Uh, one of my one of my colleagues in the group is, is the rabbi for a congregation out in California. And her, her, uh, the cantor that works with her is a male and he has a long white beard. He has a big white beard and yeah, I guess it's long and he's an older man and everybody always assumes that he's the rabbi and he's very good. She really appreciated. He's very good about redirecting people and immediately, oh no, no, she's the rabbi. But, you know, it's like a constant fight. So, you know, I was thinking about all these things and I was really disturbed, partly because I'm really attached to the painting and I've been loving the idea of sitting underneath it. I even said so in one of my videos, in one of my YouTube videos, I was like, "Uh, I love sitting with this guy behind me, looking over my shoulder. And, but then the more... And and so I, I kept thinking about it. And the more I thought about it overnight, the more I realized it felt like cancel culture. And I thought, oh, I don't wanna participate in cancel culture. I don't believe in cancel culture. I think it's, it's very angry and it's very um, dismissive and it doesn't come from a heart-centered place. I don't need to cancel. I don't need to cancel old man rabbi. And the truth is, I realized that by sitting in front of old man rabbi, that sentiment that I had expressed of, oh, I like having this old guy looking over my shoulder when I'm talking. I Actually, I feel not only like I'm getting support, but I feel like I'm actually defying. By sitting in front of him, I'm defying the wider culture and Jewish stereotypes, J- stereotypes of, of rabbis, of Jews, all of it. Um, one of the things we discussed in our group is how even on um, even on you know in the most progressive shows like uh, oh god I can't remember the name of the show it's a cartoon um, family guy family guy and and on that show they show which like these are super progressive people and what's their image of a rabbi it's an old guy with a black hat and a and pay the side curls and it's just so frustrating these images are everywhere you, you can't get away from them and that's not the majority of, the, of Jews it's a tiny minority and yet that's what people think about when they think about Jews they think all Jews are dressed like that and walk like that and talk like that and whatever um, so in addition to all of this I don't feel like I need need to erase the past. The past is part of my story, like my grandfather who lovingly laughed at my desire to wear a yarmulke as a girl child. It was beyond his imagination. When I, it was Passover one year and I said, and you know, my grandfather was giving out yarmulkes to all the men, gave one to my brother. And I said, I wanna wear a yarmulke. And he laughed at me. It was with love, but he was like, oh no, girls don't wear a yarmulke, he said in his Yiddish, in his Yiddish accent. And I was, I was ashamed. I know he didn't mean to make me feel that way, but I was. that's how I felt. And in defiance of that, I wear a yarmulke now and I wear a tallis. It makes me feel I am equally representing women and I'm making a change. And though my grandfather wasn't a rabbi, there's a sense that with this painting, he's watching over me, marveling at the fact... He also didn't have a, a white beard. He didn't have a beard. But I still feel like he's watching over me, marveling at the fact that I'm carrying out his cherished desire for me to love Judaism. And I'm carrying it out by becoming a rabbi myself. I bet he's laughing at the irony of it now. But I'm sure he's also marveling at the fact that I, as a woman, have that choice today. Every year when I read the Parsha Chaye Sarah, The Life of Sarah, I marvel at the character of Rebecca. Yeah, this is not about the life of Sarah. It starts with the death of Sarah, which is, which is funny to name it after her. But in that way, it's really... It starts with her death, and it goes on to tell a completely different story, as if a whole a whole new epic is, is coming into being. And so I marvel at this character of Rebecca when I read about it. This is where she shows up in this week's Parsha, and I wonder how she had the strength and the faith to agree to marry a man she'd never seen, knew nothing about, in a far-off place, and to leave... She leaves her home by the very next morning, after this servant shows up, to ask, to, looking, for, looking for a wife for Isaac, for Abraham's son, Isaac. And so she leaves, where did she find that strength and that faith to, to get up and go, to agree and, and without even flinching. She had very little choice in her life's trajectory So she might have protested still in some way. She might have begged for more time, pleaded with her brother and her mother not to be sent away forever. She might have cried, but none of this happens. In fact, it's her family that begs for a little more time with her. But she says, no, I'll go. And when she leaves, she simply takes her maid, her personal belongings, and her family's blessings with her and goes on her way perhaps never to see them again. Perhaps she started with a good, solid sense of faith. Perhaps Abraham's servant's faith also feeds her. The servant sent by Abraham is on a mission to seek a wife for Isaac, as I said before, and he has very strict instructions to find a woman from among his family, not from the local Canaanites. And he must swear to Abraham that he will secure a woman a wife who will agree to return with him and under no uncertain terms is Isaac to go live in her land so he's got a serious mission here there's no negotiating the servant takes his oath very seriously and it's not it doesn't seem to be out of fear because Abraham says if if she doesn't agree then you're freed of your of your oath don't worry about it But still, he takes it very seriously and he prays to the God of Abraham to help him. They don't share the same God. And at the same time, he knows that Abraham's God has sent an angel before him to lead the way and help him. How does he know that? Because Abraham has told him so, and he believes it without question, he has faith. The servant imagines the kind of girl he's looking for and the conversation that will come about. He imagines... a. Uh, one who's generous and kind, who's quick to help a thirsty man and his camels after a long trek in the desert. And when his prayers are fulfilled, he marvels that what he had imagined is exactly what comes true. He's so excited that he refuses to eat when they sit down to eat, when the family sits down. He refuses to eat until he has told his tale of his mission to his hosts. So he has a very deep faith. He knows he is not alone on this journey. He knows that there is a God out there who really cares. I was listening a few days ago to old recordings um, of Rabbi, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sacks talking on his website, um, rabbisacks.org. You can go there and find it. And he, in this case, he's talking to um, uh, a bunch of Yeshiva University students, female students, and he's talking about the importance of faith. It's from 2013, this, this, um, this recording, and he says that as humans, we are made to have faith, just like we are made for connection to each other. We can't live without connection to each other, and we can't live without faith in something or we can't live in a healthy way, mentally healthy way, without faith in something greater than ourselves, something that cares about us. There is no hope, he says, and life has no meaning without this. Faith, he says, is closely tied tied to religion, and our modern American society is also founded on religions and especially, specifically Judaism's moral principles. He says, although religion can and has been, well, this actually this part is my words, although religion can and has been manipulated, abused and abusive, those are my words, like I said, Sack says that when we lose a collective sense of faith and there is no agreed upon moral principles, when everyone is on their own to make and find meaning in life, what happens is that personal and collective tragedies increase. As in suicide rates and mass shootings, I add. He talked about suicide rates. This is called anime, a sociological term from Emil Durkheim, the founder of sociology, who coined this term anime. It's when a society loses its collective sense of faith, and everybody's on their own, trying to figure it out. That's where we are now. Why does he say this? Because meaning is not something we do on our own. We are like, I love this, I love this metaphor, we are like individual letters that have no meaning, except if joined together to become words which likewise come together to form sentences and then paragraphs in order to make meaning. Letters on their own cannot stand alone. Words on their own cannot stand alone. Neither can sentences. You get the picture. We cannot make meaning alone. Thus, thus society cannot live in a healthy way. We can't have a healthy society without a shared understanding and purpose. In the same way, though many would like us to believe it, science cannot stand alone without religion. Sachs says that the skepticism that science has promoted and that has infected our society is a very bad mistake. Moreover, it has become a widespread idea that religion is a way of explaining things we couldn't explain before. This is an idea exactly that I grew up with. This is what my parents taught me. They're like, we didn't have, we didn't understand. That's why religion exists. But Sachs says, Rabbi Sachs says, science can tell us how things work, though not why. Technology gives power, but doesn't tell us how to use that power. Democratically elected governments can stop us from harming other people, but they do not. They cannot tell us how to live. The market gives us choices but it doesn't tell us what the good choices to make are and what are bad and there are three questions that science can't answer and they are who am i why am i here and how then shall i live Sachs continues we have affluence and choices our grandparents couldn't have imagined, our Bubbies and Zadies. Yet, the despair has increased. He's amused by those he likes to call the angry atheists who argue that there probably is no God. He tells a story of um, a bunch of years ago where a group an atheist organization put out these ads all over the London buses, all over London, on these double-decker buses, buses. And what did these they say? The ad said there probably is no God. It, it's hilarious, really. And and you know, but what's not hilarious is that those who are Those who believe this, those who are angry atheists, as he says, and I've met a lot of them, they are also in despair. I have a a friend of mine, a friend of a friend who committed suicide. She was one of those people. She cared so much about the world, so, so much. She dedicated her life to teaching children and people who who had fewer means than, than she did. And she had all the abundance in her life that she needed. And yet she was left with this terrible despair. What was the meaning of it? What was going to happen to the world? And she ended up committing suicide, just like Rabbi Sachs talks about. So there probably is no God. Then Rabbi Sachs goes into this long Thing about probability. I ask, what was the probability that Abraham's servant would find exactly what he was looking for? And that would it would happen, that it would happen exactly as he imagined and hoped. Our tradition teaches from Psalm 23: I will not be afraid, for you are with me. When Rebecca approaches the place of her future home, She sees Isaac, and without knowing who he is, she falls off her camel. It's a very, it's a lovely little story. Very charming. She's obviously overcome simply by the sight of Isaac. He must be really good looking. And then the Torah tells us Isaac loved her. It's only the second reference to love in the Bible. Rebecca didn't have many choices. They were either marriage or harlotry. But what she did have was faith. Yet what was the probability that Rebecca would find love with a man she'd never even seen, or that he would be handsome to boot? Still, the possibility of love gives us hope. Love and connection bring meaning to life. We don't know why. These things belong to the part of life whose explanation defies logic or science. And they are part of our story. My inheritance is part of my story. This old man rabbi, he's part of my story of where I come from. It's a story I am playing a part in changing. If I didn't have faith that I could make a difference in making Judaism less dogmatic, more inclusive and egalitarian, I wouldn't have bothered investing so much time, so many years and so much effort and so much money in studying for the past seven years. In itself, having faith is countercultural to the United States. That fact, that, I mean, sorry, that faith that I have is rooted in something that I believe cares about me, cares about us, not in a traditional God way, like old man in the sky with a long beard, speaking of which, no. But I do believe that there's something out there that is greater, that cares about me, that cares about all of us, and that hears prayers. And as my tradition teaches through our prayers, I should never be ashamed of that faith or of Judaism. I struggle with my shame around that faith. It's hard for me to talk about. It's it's so counter to the culture I grew up in in my home so it's hard to talk about and I deal with a lot of people that are like the people I grew up with in my family and in my political world tragedy a Greek word that has no equivalent in Hebrew means bad things happen because of the way the world is the universe it says is blind to our existence, deaf to our prayers. It couldn't care less whether we exist or not. But Judaism says otherwise, Rabbi Sachs says. And as I said last week, all the great leaders of social movements have shared a deep faith. Atheists who look to them, to these these great leaders, who look to them for guidance, tend to disregard or forget this fact. Meanwhile, it is this faith that drove them, drove them, to fight for the possible. They weren't fighting for the probable. It was against all probability. They were fighting for the possible. I love the following letters and words that are strung together by Rabbi Sachs that I'm going to read now. Jews have proved in every age that faith is the defeat of probability by the power of possibility. I'm going to say that again. Jews have proved in every age that faith is the defeat of probability by the power of possibility. Judaism, through its great heroes and heroines, has shown us what we might achieve and by challenging us to great heights, lifted us to greatness. May we be lifted to greatness and may God bless all that we do. And I'm going to add to that blessing from Rabbi Sachs. May we each continue to strengthen our faith through our ancient stories. May we find strength in our faith and may we play a part in the counterculture of faith for the good of all humanity and say amen. And I invite you to visit my website, tamid.us, T-A-M-I-D.us, U-S. US. Maybe I'm meant to do one of those life cycle things for you, for your family, um, marriage, funerals, uh, bar mitzvah training, bat mitzvah training, baby namings. And maybe I'm meant to be your spiritual director or somebody you know. Now, if you don't know what spiritual direction is, please visit my website. I explain it in great depth there. And shoot me an email and we can talk. And I wish you a Shabbat Shalom for real. Juliet the rabbi, the real rabbi, making it real, keeping it real from New York. Until next time.